Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Ladies and gentlemen, um, welcome uh, to tonight's event uh, with uh, uh, Martin Daunton from uh, the University uh, of Cambridge, um, where he was uh, uh, Professor of Economic History from 1997 to 2015, and where he continues as Professor Emeritus of Economic History. Uh, There is not that much difference, actually. One gets rid of of a little bit of teaching and uh, and formally is no longer available for uh, supervision and and all that. Uh, But of course, informally, uh, these things continue, as far as I can see. It is one of the professions where you can't really retire from. It's like, it's like a sabbatical for the rest of your life. It's a, it's a, it's a sabbatical, yeah, which, which is uh, perhaps mixed news because it, yeah. it falls to be productive. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, so um, um, uh, among the many things he has uh, done in his career, uh, I notice uh, the uh, 1995 book uh, at Oxford University Press on the Progress and Poverty, The Economic History of Britain Between 1700 and 1850. Uh, not that this is in any way uh, our field, um, so, so, so yes, indeed. Um, among the more recent things, um, with, a, uh, with an emphasis and a focus on material culture, uh, I notice a book on the Royal Mail from 2015 at Bloomsbury, um, Housing the Workers from the same year, uh, so you, you clearly, re- not retired, but went into emeritus status, mm-hmm. not, not on a wimper, but really with a bang, like two, two books in the same year. Um, and uh, now we are talking uh, about uh, his new book. You've seen it outside, um, the uh, economic government of the world uh, uh, since 1933. Just uh, fresh out of the press and um, uh, available for um, uh, purchase and uh, signing. And as I'm kind of advertising it now, of course, I made sure beforehand that I get my cut and, <laughs> and all that. Um, among the uh, many honors he has had is, uh, I just mentioned only one, which is uh, to be uh, uh, president uh, of the Royal History Society. So please, Martin, would you enlighten us a bit? Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, continuing the shameless plugging of my book, there's, there's, there is the, the, the cover. Um, writing history that comes right up to the present, to 2023, is both risky and rewarding. There's a risk that the book will be out of date before it's even published. There's a reward that developments uh, going on at the present will make the history more relevant and increase the sales uh, outside. (laughs) And I think both of those risks and and rewards apply to this book. Shortly before it came out, came out in May, in April, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor to Joe Biden, delivered a major speech on renewing American economic leadership. And that speech led to a discussion over what that new leadership should be. Would it be a turn away from a commitment to multilateralism that marked American leadership after 1945 to a politer form of economic nationalism under Biden and under Trump? Or was that speech a pragmatic response that would balance domestic welfare with internationalism uh, that had been undermined 
uh, by, the, by the Washington Consensus. Now, I think that the questions around uh, those debates around Sullivan are at the heart of this book. I think there were four major themes in the book, which I'll just briefly mention now. The first is how to balance economic nationalism with a concern for internationalism. That balance could go too far towards economic nationalism as in the 1930s, or too far the other way to hyperglobalization at the turn of the 20th and 21st centuries. That's the first question. The second question is what is the changing trade-off between different policy options within the trilemma of fixed or floating exchange rates, of free or controlled capital flows, or active and passive domestic monetary policy, to which I add a fourth point about free trade versus protectionism. What leads to the change in the trade-off between those different options? And thirdly, both of those issues connect with domestic politics within a number of countries. The power of different interest groups within changing social and economic structures and the ability of politicians and economists to shape the discourse that defines the problem. And fourthly, there's the geopolitics of international economic relations. Whose voice was heard at different times and how did the balance change over time? Now, understanding the history of those four themes matters for our current debates. History is drawn upon for supposed lessons. For example, at the time of the global financial crisis, Ben Bernanke applied the, the, the failings, as he saw it, of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy after 1929 to what he would do as chair of the Fed after 2008-2009. But the thing I want to focus on today is the debates over the future being inflected with nostalgia for a supposedly golden age of the Bretton Woods system, when it is argued that a balance was achieved between domestic welfare and internationalism through international cooperation under benign American leadership, what Sullivan wants to return to. I want to focus upon that point. After the global financial crisis, there were frequent calls, including from Gordon Brown, for a return to Bretton Woods as an idealised era of global, global cooperation and domestic prosperity. For example, at the World Economic Conference in Forum in Dave, at Davos in December 2019, Klaus Schwab remarked, I quote, we need a new framework for global cooperation in order to preserve peace. After the Second World War, leaders from across the globe came together to design a new set of institutional structures to enable the post-war world to collaborate towards building a shared future. As a matter of urgency, we must undertake the process again. So he's looking back to the Bretton Woods era, and we must repeat it. Now, I think that might be good political rhetoric, but it's poor history. The experience of Bretton Woods is not about an ideal of harmonious international institutions resolving disputes. It's about muddle, compromise, improvisation and power politics. On my reading, 
the lesson to be learned from the setting up of the Bretton Woods regime is that we face current challenges which are not to be addressed through imagining a fantasy of an inclusive, cooperative international structure, but to accept that the outcome now, as then, will be contested, muddled and improvised. So let me go back to the setting up of the so-called Bretton Woods system, the agreement in 1944 at Bretton Woods. And that policy, that, that conference, was only possible because of a number of contingencies which applied at that time, which cannot be repeated. What were those contingencies? Well, first of all, it built upon the 1936 tripartite agreement between the United States, the United Kingdom and France to stabilise currencies. But it was more than that. It was also about geopolitics to create a bloc of liberal capitalist democracies against authoritarian regimes. And during the war, that continued as a bloc, including the Soviets and China, against Germany and Japan. The attempt to set up the four policemen at the end of the war of the United States, Britain, China and Russia, Soviet Union, to guide the post-war world. The second contingency is that it was possible to reshape the monetary system because the City of London and Wall Street had been constrained since the war's the crash, and during the war, financial markets were suspended. So it's much easier to remake the whole financial monetary system when it's not functioning. It also meant that capital controls could be imposed and domestic interest rates fixed without provoking capital flows and maintaining pegged exchange rates. And it was this system which is actually opposed vigorously after 1944 by the American Bankers Association because they saw it would marginalise them. And the final contingency I will mention, and many others, is that the Bretton Woods Agreement was limited to one issue, and one issue only, monetary issues. And that was a pragmatic choice. It was technical and it was less politically sensitive than trade which divided the coalition government in this country. However, this limitation led to resistance from other groups who thought that a wider approach was needed. They were marginalised and resentful. So I think we need to look at the way in which there were these marginalisation of other groups and how they tried to fight back. And at the one side, you have what are now called by Quinn Slobodian the Geneva Liberals. Hayek and Robbins up here, of course, at the, at the LSE, as well as in Geneva at the, at the League. They believed that a superior political power was needed to protect the global economy from the misuse of sovereignty by nation-states that would harm prosperity. To them, the economy was spontaneous and unknowable and should be allowed to work without interference within a framework of law that would guard what they called providential planlessness from planners who might use totalitarian methods of economic management. On the other hand, you have the view emerging at the League of Nations in the 1930s, which was called 
positive security. And this included economists like James Mead and nutritionists, uh, people like John Boyd Orr and here Stanley Melbourne Bruce, former Prime Minister of Australia, who was the, the chair of the League. His uh, advisor was a man called Frank McDougall. They argued that we had to, they had to demonstrate that democratic countries can achieve for their people greater comfort and well-being than can the fascist and communist states. They wanted better pay, better conditions of labour, better nutrition. That would then stimulate purchasing power. That would end the, the depression. They linked their argument over nutrition with the argument of the International Labour Organization on pay and conditions. They wanted pensions, family allowances, distribution of food to the poorest. James Mead worked at the League of Nations in the late 1930s and he wrote a book just as he was leaving there to come back to Britain called The Economic Basis for a Durable Peace. It called for international regulation of economies, control of commodity prices, international public works, coordination of national credit. Exactly what Hayek and Robbins disliked. Now, that view of positive security fed into two international meetings which were held prior to Bretton Woods, and this is where they were fought out. The first meeting was the Hot Springs Conference on Food and Agriculture in May to June 1943, and the eminence degree of that was uh, John Boyd Orr, the great nutritional scientist. They wanted at this conference buffer stocks to stabilise prices of primary production, to raise consumption, to deal with malnutrition. They went far beyond monetary stability and multinational trade to remove global imbalances. Keynes thought this was mad to try and fix this, this first. The second meeting was the International Labour Organization meeting at Philadelphia in April to May 1944. And the new charter of the ILO made a commitment to economic growth, full employment and higher standards of living. But above all, this is the point of Nugget Coombs, who did his PhD here at the LSE in the 1930s, the leader of the Australian delegation, which was to have the full employment of the resources of the world, building upon the work of McDougall. It was argued that this was necessary as a complement to Bretton Woods, you could only have stable exchanges and multilateral trade if you were confident that countries could take off tariff barriers and give up the weapon of exchange rates. It was also necessary, if you were going to be linked to the American economy in a multilateral world economy, that the American economy, which they said was highly cyclical, became committed to full employment. So at Bretton Woods, these voices were attempted to be inserted into the debates. They were pushed back. But after the war, they came back again in the debates over the International Trade Organization. 
At Philadelphia, it was agreed that when trade was talked about after the war, it should also talk about employment. And that conference on trade and employment was held at Geneva and Havana in 1947 to 48. The idea was to establish an international trade organisation, which would set up rules for both trade and employment, not something Americans necessarily wanted. They wanted multilateral trade to create an open multilateral economy, which would itself create growth. So they argued you didn't need to focus upon employment. Employment would follow. Others argued, like Coombs and Mead, that full employment was a precondition for taking away trade barriers and having uh, fixed pegged exchange rates. Otto Clark, a leading figure at the British Treasury, said that without a commitment to full employment, the international trade organisation would grossly hinder individual countries from pursuing an internal full employment policy and we tie ourselves up to the highly peripatetic US economy. So there's a debate, contestion, over what is meant by multilateralism. More than that, the less developed countries wanted to go further. The Indian delegation said that we want to have protection of infant industries, and that means that Britain will have to have unemployment for us to have a development of our industries, not something, of course, that went down very well within the Labour government at the time. The Latin Americans wanted dignified existence for workers, an ending of sweating of labour, of substandard conditions in export industries. They also wanted the profits from natural resources to go to the, the country itself, the workers in the country, the citizens, and not to foreigners. So, this has opened up Pandora's box of all other sorts of debates. Clayton, Will Clayton, the leader of the American delegation, was in serious problem. He wanted to get agreement to the Charter, but to do that he had to give in to these voices in Havana. He was playing a two-level game. In winning that game, he lost support on Capitol Hill. So the international trade organisation never happened. What you have instead is a general agreement on tariffs and trade of 1947. So the creation of the IMF in 1944 and GATT in 1947 reflected, as I said, compromise, conflict, improvisation, rather than a coherent plan. It also reflected miscalculations by the Americans about the transition after the war. The Americans believed at Bretton Woods the transition would be very quick. Within a year, you'd be back to freely floating exchange, uh, sorry, pegged exchange rates uh, and, and convertibility. But when Clayton came to uh, Europe in May 1947, he realised that that was not going to happen. America needed to give aid to Europe, and Europe needed a customs union to create what he called a strong integrated Europe in place of, he said, highly divided, nationalistic, and autar autarkic series of economies. And his plea was one of the background features for the Marshall Plan. But he was immediately accused of being confused. He's arguing for multilateral trade. He's opposing British imperial preference. 
but at the same time he's arguing for a European customs union. Are these things not contradictory? Well, he said, no, they are complementary. He said, without a customs union, Europe would descend into chaos. Without an international trade organisation laying down rules, there would be economic nationalism. So you needed to have both. Now, what I'm arguing here is there's not a single story of American hegemony and cooperation. The outcome here was a response to the failure of Bretton Woods in 1944, the limits of American leadership being shaped in Britain and Europe, as well as Washington, and changing what the Americans wanted to do. And of course, at the same time, you have the, uh, the collapse of the idea of the four policemen. Because Roosevelt wanted the Soviets inside the IMF, inside the International Trade Organization, it didn't happen. GATS became a partisan club of democratic capitalist market economies against communism. But it also meant um, a, an exclusion of what we would now call the Global South. It meant that the uh, Global South was not being considered as they had hoped to be at the ITO meeting in Havana. How to respond to that? And again, this creates a huge dilemma within the American administration. Outright hostility would only prove the points of the critics that this was a capitalist conspiracy. Instead, um, here you have Bandan where the voices are, be, are being expressed. Instead, you have a movement of Kennedy in the 1960s to the Alliance on Progress, trying to work with Latin America, working through the UN development decade of the 1960s to win support. So we'll go for the Alliance on Progress, in, particularly in Latin America, the Kennedy Round of Trade talks as well to try and reduce the customs union barriers in, the, uh, in Europe. But we also have alongside that uh, what I would think to be an abuse of economic history <clears throat> by Walt Rostow. Walt Rostow argued that uh, the most dangerous period when communists could take over in the third world, in the global south, was at the moment when you move from tradition to modernity, when you move towards the takeoff into self-sustained growth. And before that period of self-sustained growth takes place, you need to have the destruction of the, uh, the, the communist menace, as he saw it, particularly in Vietnam. And here he is advising President Johnson on the war in Vietnam. So he's a, a, a hawk in the Vietnam War. So what I'm arguing then is that the so-called Bretton Woods system was very different from initial American intentions. It's shaped by geopolitics, by other voices. It's adapted and contested rather than a golden age of cooperation. It only came into effect in 1958 when convertibility was introduced and it was very soon after that soon to be seen to be fundamentally flawed. The writing was on the wall by 1968. And I suggest a number of ways in which the writing was on the, on the wall, just to run through those uh, very quickly. There was a flaw in the design in 1944 that the system was asymmetrical. 
there was no obligation on strong currencies to revalue. So Germany and Japan could pursue export policies with undervalued currencies, which led to American criticism. On the other hand, there was European criticism that the US balance of payments was weakening, uh, that they were not taking uh, ac action on that weakening. They were misusing the, uh, the, the uh, sovereignty, the exorbitant privilege, the seniorage of printing dollars. Uh, and you have the Triffin dilemma, of course, which is that the way in which liquidity was being pumped into the world economy was by the American deficit. But if you have an American deficit, that makes the dollar susceptible to speculation and pressure. There was also concern over the customs union, which, uh, which um, had been argued by Clayton was needed. That was now a threat to the United States, both economically and politically, by weakening the Atlantic Partnership. This leads to a geopolitical dilemma during the Kennedy round of trade talks. It links with capital mobility. Capital controls have been permitted by Bretton Woods, so one way of improving the US balance of payments was to increase capital controls, which Kennedy did with the interest equalisation tax of 1963. But that bumps up against the revival of the power of finance. It bumps up against the emergence of the euro-dollar markets from offshore earnings of US firms encouraged by the interest equalisation tax. You keep the earnings offshore by petroleum producers having dollars to invest. You have the growing voice of the third world being excluded from the Kennedy round, building upon the Bandung conference I mentioned, and leading to the setting up of UNCTAD, the United Nations Commission on Trade and Development. So these flaws in the Bretton Woods system meant it had to be kept going by expedience, rather than by the IMF. The IMF was largely absent from discussions over reform. Instead, there is a new group of institutions, uh, the G20, the OECD, uh, the uh, action within national capitals themselves. Above all, it was kept going by swap lines between national bankers. The whole argument at Bretton Woods of Morgenthau, the Secretary of the Treasury, was to get rid of central bankers to remove them from what he called the Temple of High Finance. But here they are actually uh, running, as Catherine Schenk has shown, the uh, swap lines uh, through the central banks working with the Bank of International Settlements, which was meant to have been abolished uh, at the Bretton Woods conference. So Bretton Woods doesn't explain growth after the war. Attempts to keep it alive leads to market distortions rather than growth. I think, though, it did matter. And it mattered because officials and politicians used it as like, the lodestar to pursue. They sought as something to aim towards, even if they couldn't achieve it. It was associated with attempts to balance domestic welfare with multilateralism through pegged exchange rates. And that was done as it was an aspiration rather than an achievement. I'll come back to that when we look at uh, Jake Sullivan. But I would also suggest that the Bretton Woods regime, as far as it did work, only worked because it rested on a particular economic system. It rested upon creating domestic support 
within the democratic capitalist economy, resting upon a particular social contract between labour, capital and the state that could contain economic nationalism. That meant modest wage demands from workers who were working largely in Fordist mass production with a decent wage and decent pensions, a decent profit level for industrialists which could be invested in higher productivity, and the state underwriting that through better schools, healthcare and social support. It was a system which could only work as long as you had that Fordist mass production which gave workers without formal education in many cases decent uh, wages and stable wages. Uh, so, and so it was that system which underpins the whole thing. So when President Nixon abandoned the Bretton Woods uh, paid rate system in August 1971, it was only after this period of weakness. It was just the, if like, the final nail in the coffin. An attempt was made to put it back together again at the end of 1971, the Smithsonian, to no avail. And then, of course, we have uh, a new set of crises, which uh, I address in, in the book. The ending of the discipline of fixed exchange rates, removing the need to limit wage increases. The exchange rate, it was argued, could take the strain. You could remain competitive in Britain by exporting goods by allowing the, the exchange rate to, to, to fall. And that social contract between capital, labour and the state broke down with a change in the production system. Productivity growth falling, profit rates being squeezed. In the United Kingdom, the gross rate of return from manufacturing fell from 16.4% in 1960 to 5.5% in 1982. Lower profits, fall investment, lower productivity growth, stagflation. And then, of course, we have the Volcker shock uh, in 1979 a return to monetary discipline under Paul Volcker, the Fed, to break inflationary expectations, which was taken further by uh, Reagan, supported by Reagan, who argued that uh, the market would uh, provide a solution to the perceived failures of the post-war order. <clears throat> Growth and prosperity, he said, would be delivered through populist market optimism. It meant political pressure to limit the power of trade unions in Britain and the United States. There was deindustrialization and the decline of that Fordist production that I talked about, the result being a decline of what has been called lovely jobs and the growth of lousy jobs, precarious jobs, particularly in the service sector. That leads to recovery in the profit share, but not in productivity. So this is the crocodile capitalism is called by UNCTAD, profit share rising, labour share dropping. If labour share is dropping, you don't need to uh, actually invest more in order to remain uh, uh, profitable. Uh, you don't have productivity growth. But I think it's important also to say that this shift does not lead to a rollback of uh, social welfare. On the contrary, <clears throat> Social welfare is needed to support neoliberalism and to complement the weakening role of collective bargaining. So you have relief for people in work. Another change going on at this time, of course, is the OPEC price shock and the new international economic order of 1974. 
This again means that the decolonisation, the achievements of the OPEC oil producers gave less developed countries confidence to demand a restructuring of the global economy. How to respond to that? And this is where Henry Kissinger, uh, under Nixon and, and Ford, was saying, well, we don't, again, take them on head on. What we do, he said, is fuzz it up. We make supportive noises and pick off individual countries. By contrast, France and Willy Brandt with the North-South Dialogue say, no, you form an alliance with the uh, countries which are oil producers or, or, or less developed countries. So you have this, again, debate going on here, but what is the correct geopolitical solution to it? And at Cancun in 1981, that moment when that new, that different approach, more crafty approach, was possible, fails. The new international economic order uh, shifts from that demand for general principles instead to trying to work on pragmatic negotiations on individual issues. And my final point here about the change going on at this period is the shift towards greater capital flows. The OPEC uh, massive production of, of petrodollars needs to be recycled, and that is recycled through commercial banks rather than the IMF, and attempts, particularly by the Germans, the Europeans, to uh, regulate the euro-dollar market fails. Instead, that is going to be used to recycle. And as the City of London and Wall Street compete in that, it deregulates and shifts the balance of power between state and finance, which have been reached at Bretton Woods. So international institutions then need to redefine what their role would be. The IMF redefines its role in 1997. At Bretton Woods, capital controls. The managing director of the IMF, however, argued that by amending the rules of the articles of the IMF in 1997 to make capital account liberalisation a purpose of the fund, he would complete the Bretton Woods Agreement. In fact, that's not correct. It was undermining the Bretton Woods Agreement. Capital account liberalisation was not a purpose of the fund in 1944. But what happens is the IMF becomes a backstop for commercial bank lending, particularly in Latin America and Asia, which leads to moral hazard. Meanwhile, at GATT, there's a revival of the Geneva Liberals' aim of protecting the world economy from states. Jan Tumlier, the head of economics research at GATT, said in 1983, international rules are needed to protect the world market against governments. The switch of GATT to the World Trade Organization in 1995 was welcomed by the European community at that time because it would impose rules to stop the Americans behaving unilaterally. It was also welcomed by developing countries as a guarantee that the weaker trading partners would be protected against the arbitrary and unilateral actions of the strong. That's a quote from Indonesia. But that soon shifts. The World Trade Organization could also be used, despite initial scepticism, by the United States. Because the concern of American business now with intellectual property, which favoured developed countries, but it was also, above all, after 9-11, 
when it was realised that the threat of terrorism was created by poverty. So it's a shift towards the wider Doha development agenda, which failed, just as the ITO did. I'll come back to that point later on. Now, the global financial crisis of 2007 to 8, I would argue, exposed the risks of that financial liberalisation. <coughs> it seemed to be a chance to reverse that economic order which had been set up in the 1970s onwards. In 2009, the G20 met here in London. I start the book with the 1933 World Monetary Conference. And Gordon Brown said that this conference in 2009 must not repeat the mistakes of 1933. It must be successful. Well, what Gordon Brown wanted to do was have a policy of fiscal stimulus. It didn't really happen. Why didn't it? Well, at around that time, Mervyn King, then the governor of the Bank of England, said that short-term financial measures to solve that problem was the wrong solution. The solution was to cut debt, increase investment and shift from domestic consumption to exports. And having fiscal expansion at home would, would stop that. Brown was also rejected by Angela Merkel. She said the solution was to control global financial markets, the implication being that Brown had actually not controlled global financial markets. And in that decision argument, she was influenced by domestic electoral considerations within Germany, the costs of reconstructive East Germany had already created problems, but she was also concerned about an ageing population which would reduce competitiveness in the future, so it was vital now to export and accumulate a surplus. On top of that, there's a capture of British and American state by financial elites, which was sustained by what I call the wealth effect. As more people were drawn into the financial sector through uh, pensions, mortgages, investments, credit cards, it creates what some historians have called a bigger bailout constituency than existed in the 1930s. And politicians on the right, George Osborne, for example, create a narrative that passed the blame for economic problems onto state spending rather than to private debt and financialisation. So we can think here of uh, Reinhardt and, and, and Rogoff. Even the IMF was alarmed by the British government's commitment to austerity, said they were playing with fire by ignoring the impact of austerity on growth. So by 2010, we have growth-friendly fiscal consolidation rather than fiscal stimulus. This is made up, and this of course is a, a well-known story, by quantitative easing. This is where Bernanke's lesson uh, is learned, where you have uh, rather than a fall in the monetary supply after 29, a continued increase, which of course also leads to increase in asset prices which benefit the rich, and to swap lines, as we noticed back in the 1960s, uh, which was uh, under the radar, but very important, and more important than the IMF, and crucially, China providing fiscal stimulus. The motivation there being to provide continued economic growth, 
to sustain the legitimacy of the Communist Party, which helped pull the world out of crisis at the expense within China of distorting investment in infrastructure projects and unsustainable debt, which we are now seeing the consequences of. So those three actions were uncoordinated and were self-interested rather than an outcome of the Bretton Woods institutions. And I think that what did not happen is as important as what did happen. I think there was a failure to fix the underlying problems. And the lessons that were learned were partial. The lesson learned by Bernanke excluded other potential lessons that could be learned and were pointed to by other economic historians like Barry Eichengreen. What were the lessons not learned that could have been learned? First of all, reduction in inequality. There was not an addressing of that balance between returns to capital and labour. <clears throat> there was support for bankers, not for homeowners in the 1930s was the other way around. There was inadequate regulation of finance, again, compared with the 1930s. The 2008 crash didn't lead to a revolution in economics, as happened in the 1930s and 1970s. Uh, a review has just come out by Jane Humphrey, says, I don't attack economists enough in the book. I thought I did, but hey, uh, it can't please everybody. I'm very happy to attack economists even more. And uh, finally... Uh, during the New Deal and a, uh, and, uh, a controlling of corporate power which was not done uh, after the global financial crisis. Now, did the international institutions play any role at all in preventing the global financial crisis from becoming a Great Depression? And this is work by Eichen Green and O'Rourke which shows that it seems as if recovery happened quicker. Uh, after the, uh, with the onset of the depression and the global financial crisis. The two experiences diverge. And some commentators, like Daniel Dresner, argue that the international institutions helped. They worked. Trade restrictions did not grow. The, world, the WTO World Trade Reports showed that very few new trade restrictions were introduced. I think that this is an, an incorrect view to look, to look at. In fact, they shouldn't have been so confident, the WTO and Daniel Dresden, because they were looking in the wrong place. What GATT did after the war was stop trade warfare through tariffs. What the Uruguay round of GATT talks did later on was prevent the use of non-trade barriers. What happened after the global financial crisis was a use of subsidies. The WTO didn't even bother to record subsidies, but an independent global trade alert report found that in 2019, 62% of global trade was covered by subsidies, and that it more than tripled over the previous decade. So was it really the case that the institutions worked? Well, as we saw, the prevention of the depression was not caused, was not helped, really, by those institutions. It happened despite them. Now, this takes me to uh, Sullivan. Where now? Sullivan starts from the assumption 
that after the Second World War, the United States, and I quote, led a fragmented world to build a new international economic order. But what I've been saying is, no, it didn't. The United States was not hegemonic. It was all much more complicated than that. And what he wants, he says, is a return to the core belief we first championed 80 years ago that America should be at the heart of a vibrant international financial system that enables partners around the world to reduce poverty and enhance shared prosperity. I think, again, that is a rather Panglossian view of what happened after the Second World War. <clears throat> he wants a modern industrial innovation strategy, investing in sectors foundational to growth and security. In fact, what he wants is subsidies. He wants to subsidise a green transition, the Inflation Reduction Act. He says that it's not just about domestic autarky, but to work with other countries. But he doesn't actually say very much about how that would be done. In fact, what he stresses all the time, in order to build a domestic coalition support, is attacking China using this as a, a, a counter to the Belt and Road Initiative. So he's not really developing an international agenda, and Biden is just a, really a polite form of Trump, in, in, in a sense, going for a, a, a national view. So how should we view Sullivan and Bidenomics? It's criticised from the right as an inefficient abandonment of market logic. It criticised on the progressive left as another triumph of neoliberalism, which is simply de-risking private investment through public-private partnerships. And both of them might well criticise it as leading to economic nationalism. I'm going to be, perhaps unusually, more uh, nuanced and optimistic about this and say we shouldn't necessarily attack this we should accept what I've been saying throughout, what is practicable, what is pragmatic within the existing state of politics. And that's what I will move to in my concluding remarks. And I'm really here uh, speaking as one with um, Adam Tooze, who, who reviewed my book, and he said, I think we, we're arguing on the same sort of lines here. We've got to understand what Biden is doing, not in terms of what's happening within the European Union, where you have 27 different states needing rules to coordinate their own uh, interrelationships. That's a politics in the European Union. The politics in the United States is horse trading and Senate to try and get Joe Manchin of West Virginia on side and to wing swing states in Ohio and Michigan, and also to get buy-in from corporate energy business. So we've got to understand what is feasible. The Inflation Reduction Act is not perfect, but it's better than nothing. US politics means there's very little room for anything else. So we need to closely analyse, interrogate American domestic politics, as I was trying to do for that earlier period. What I would argue for is a polycentric approach, what I call in the book messy multilateralism flexible networks that recognise state sovereignty and build agreements between willing partners rather than trying to go for an inclusive approach through international institutions. 
This is a view that the Deputy Prime Minister of Singapore and Chair of the G20 Group on Global Finance put forward in 2018. We're in a world that is more multipolar, he said, multipolar, more decentralised in decision-making and yet more interconnected. So what we need is collaboration in a variety of venues in response to specific problems. And it's a line which is taken by Eleanor Ostrom, what she calls a polycentric approach. Rather than trying to start from the top about talking about BRICS or G20 or the IMF, start where collective action is possible. Start at all levels. So a single government unit for the global level is too complex. Too many sectors, too many interests. Global solutions don't work as well unless they're backed by national collective action. So we should start off local, close to the actors, try and build up from what is possible, create mutual trust at local level, state level, rather than try and start from the top down. Multilateral institutions do have a role in that, which is policing the borders between what individual nation states can do through global carbon taxes at the border border carbon taxes or changes in the tax regime. Start from a coalition of the willing, like-minded countries to reach plurilateral deals on particular issues which could perhaps then be extended. So WTO then steps in, I say, to police those boundaries. And we should also go back to what I was saying about that positive security argument. People like John Boyd Orr and um, the, the Americans, what they were arguing for is the Food and Agricultural Organization, the World Health Organization, to deal with issues which are actually fundamental to the climate change, uh, of climate change, food insecurity, zoonotic diseases. So I'm agreeing here with, with Adam Toombs, who was agreeing with me when he reviewed my book. Uh, which is what we need is an ad hoc agenda for problem-solving action. Rather than clear rules and norms, it entails a massive decisions and policy choices, and these will entail conflicts and demand politics and diplomacy. In the light of the urgency of the polycrisis, that's Adam's uh, phrase, this is a healthy disillusionment. It's a sign that economic policy is catching up with reality. So he welcomed my book, as being disillusioned. It sounds as if a backhanded compliment, but I, I accept that. What I'm arguing is that we need to think through how the messy ways in which American leadership can be uh, deployed, not through hegemony, not through idealism, but through uh, interplay between ideas, geopolitics, domestic electoral calculations, interest groups, changing economic structure. What the book shows perhaps overly great length, is how the system actually operated, rather than providing a nostalgic, hegemonic, order-centric view of the governance of the world economy. What we need, I think, is a little bit like I said the Prevecable System did provide, which is not a completed project, a fact, but what Adam Tooze calls a new horizon to which policy is directed. So, 
I think that's the, uh, what we need to do, and that means going beyond what Jake Sullivan was arguing about. Sullivan argued that the previous model of growth didn't work. He rejects trickle-down economics as leading to exclusion, but we need to go further to some of those lessons that I was drawing myself from the New Deal. Reforming corporations, adjusting labour markets, changing tax regimes, limiting rent-seeking behaviour, monitoring capital flows more closely, and growth not by providing greater incentives to high incomes, but increasing the power of labour. Well, that's my plea for the future. Is it going to happen? Well, I don't know. Uh, but I think what we need is somebody to say that is what is needed. I start my book, and I'll end this lecture, with somebody else, much greater figure than me, uh, John Maynard Keynes. In 1933, he reflected on the crisis of the Great Depression. He said, it arose from individualistic capitalism. He said... It is not intelligent, it is not beautiful, it is not just, it is not virtuous, and it doesn't deliver the goods. But when we wonder what to put in its place, we are extremely perplexed. Well, I think the international institutions that he helped to create emerge in a very different geopolitical context from what we are now facing. It makes talk of a new Bretton Woods implausible, the contingencies were different. But what we do need is somebody like Keynes who can say that what we need is something different. Thank you. Thank you so very much. Um, before we start collecting suitable questions, let me, um, let me uh, come up with an unsuitable observation which is you mentioned John Maynard Keynes just two times. Uh, oh, yes. At the very end and near the beginning, and that is uh, fascinating to me, yeah. uh, as quite clearly the uh, Bretton Woods era uh, would be difficult to imagine without Keynes. And, and yet it seems to me significant that uh, Keynes doesn't get much, much mention when it comes to the practical policies. Maybe yeah. you would like to elaborate, yeah. because well, I'm sure there's, there's a reason why you didn't. Yeah, well, he gets a lot more mention in, in, the, in the book. Of course, yeah. uh, uh, so. uh, A lot of discussion about him and White. Um, but he doesn't necessarily come out of it as um, a, a hero, if you like. Um, I, I create admirer of John Maynard Keynes, of course, how, how, not, how not to be uh, living in Cambridge. Um, but if we think about Bretton Woods at the conference, um, the, uh, one of the big issues there was the Sterling balances. And the, uh, the Indian delegation are saying, we want to have sterling balances repaid so we can use that money in a lump sum for development. <clears throat> oh, yes, says Keynes. Yes, trust me, I'll make sure that happens. Did it happen? No, of course it didn't. He goes back to London, he writes an article saying, oh, we can, we can forget about that. Uh, so I think that in some ways he, he was protecting British interests and he wasn't looking at these wider issues. Mm -hmm. When um, Roosevelt called the, uh, that conference at Hot Springs, um, which Lionel Robbins from the LSE attended. <coughs> Lionel Robbins said, it's very easy to have great ideas sitting in a, in a luxury hotel with all expenses paid. 
And Keynes said, yeah, he said, this is just crazy. Does Roosevelt really think we're going to solve the problems of the world economy by starting talking about food, malnutrition, poverty? Um, and I thought that was really interesting because if you read the economic consequences of the peace, 1919, his mother uh, was deeply involved in trying to uh, help uh, the hunger catastrophe in Vienna. And, he's, and he says that in the book, that if you're going to have peace, you've got to solve problems of malnutrition. So I think that there's, there's an interesting set of issues there about, about how Keynes was viewing these issues at the end of the war. White was more interested in development issues than Keynes was. You could say, taking from my lecture, well, Keynes was right. He was being pragmatic. He was starting with what could work. Um, so you know, that would be the justification. Okay, I could say a lot more about Keynes. Yeah, I'll, I'll stop say. there. Absolutely. Economic consequences of the peace don't get me started. Absolutely. No, no, okay. Yeah, but please, questions from the audience, questions um, uh, also on the online uh, question and answer system. Um, who would like to? Uh, yes, please. Yeah, it's you. Mm -hmm. In 1919, the US created the League of Nations, which. So, I'm hard of hearing, there's a microphone coming. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, it's better. Um, in 1919, the U.S. created the League of Nations, for which it removed itself. And then in the Bretton Woods, um, Keynes, as you mentioned, was not um, necessarily a hero. He was um, dismissed by Morgenthau. Um, and then if you come into the World War um, era, lots of uh, tariffs, lots of protectionist measures in the U.S. Um, do you imagine a U.S. Um, that could chart its history uh, and its hegemony, for that matter, without protectionism and without exclusion? of key players. I'm afraid the, the microphone was also distorting to my hearing. Yeah. Could, could you just repeat? The, the, the rest of the, of the question, could we imagine the US without, you need to speak a little bit louder into that microphone. Okay. Can we imagine a US without protectionism and without exclusion? Now. Yes. Could imagine the US without protectionism uh, in, the context, in the context of Bretton Woods. In the context of Bretton Woods. Well, yeah. they did. And now, of course. And now, well, uh, um, the start. One of the starting points of the of the book is is Smoot-Hawley tariffs, and um, how do you escape from pork barrel politics in the in the Senate in, in, in the House? Um, because the way in which tariffs are negotiated in, in in the states is by you know bartering on the floor of the House. And of course, that means that every house, every representative will say, "I want protection for this. I want protection for that," which happens to be my my uh, pet, pet interest. And there's one speech I quote, which is, "You know, the American potato must be protected um, because the, you know, that state was potato grower." So what we have is the um, Reciprocal Trade Agreement Act, which depoliticizes or from the House protectionism by passing it to the president, to the executive. Now, I think that's a really interesting question about how do you, how do you determine the venue in which tariffs are negotiated? The Reciprocal Trade Agreement Act is very, becomes increasingly difficult to uh, renegotiate because it's fixed term. It has to, it has to be re redone every three or four years. And what's it happening throughout the period after the war is every time it is renegotiated, the president has to give up some authority over, over tariffs uh, to the House. So you have to be able to say, 
if you if you provide um, uh, open markets in this area, then you've got to provide support for textiles in Ma Massachusetts, for example, or, or in South Carolina, uh, or you have or you have the WTO. You have to have the right of a number of retired judges to sit in judgment over the WTO decisions. I think what we've gone is 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 a long way along that line. I think what we've got happening now. I hope this is answering your question, which I couldn't quite hear because of my, my bad hearing, is the way in which Roosevelt had executive authority over tariffs being lost. But also at the same time, perhaps a decision by the, um, by the president that perhaps he wants to use tariffs, like Trump did, against, you know, against China for geopolitical reasons. So I think it's going to be very difficult to imagine that we'll go back to the multilateral world economy as was wanted after the Second World War. Professor Walters. Hi. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you very much for your lecture. I wanted to ask, um, can you hear me? Is this clear enough? Let me just check. Sorry? Uh, can you hear me? <laughs> Not really. I think, I think you need to kind of point can it you, to yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me now? Yeah, that's that's okay, that's better. Um, I was really struck um, by the start and the end of the lecture, which I thought was really interesting, because you started by criticizing the American politician you cited, I forget his name, for overstating the degree to which the Bretton Woods system was a system, was it yeah. an economic government, mm. and you emphasized how messy and complex it was. So I wanted to ask, I mean, at the end you called for a messy multilateralism in the future, so is this, a, is this a difference in degree or in kind from what we've had for the last 80 years? Um, yeah. And if it's a degree in difference, is it more that you think that the politics of how you present economic government may have changed? That it may be that the argument for a smaller scale incremental steps might work better for some reason than trying yeah. to present a system? So I'd be interested in those, those two points. Yeah, I I, I'm struggling myself to, to, to work out what will work. I said, you know, we're perplexed. Um, I took part in a, in a discussion uh, with some other economic historians uh, at the Department for Business and Trade recently. Uh, and one of the participants there from the LSE, not, not an economic historian, but a political scientist, said, well, there are diff different options here. Do we go for a completely inclusive approach by trying to rebuild uh, multilateral institutions, and sometimes you get voices saying that in the Financial Times. I th to which my answer is no, that's not the best solution. I think there there could be policemen at the, at the boundaries. Do you go for coalitions of the willing, which then excludes certain people? Well, that's the problem which I was talking about back in the uh, 1950s and, and 60s. You can't exclude the third world. Do you end up with blocks? But this is the, the risk now of BRICS as against the G20. But I think both of those are completely divided anyway. They're not going to hold together anyway. So I don't think any of those solutions are going, going to work. Uh, some of those solutions did work in the past, you know, because the G20 was a block, which, which, which could work at certain times. GATT was a democratic capitalist block, which could work, because you had an, an obvious alternative of state trading countries which are not integrated, but now you've got the issue that the Chinese economy is both the if a geopolitical um, threat, as it's seen by the Americans, and integrated into the economy. So that's, that's somewhat, somewhat different. So 
you see, I'm, I'm struggling to see what the best, the best solution is. I was arguing for the Eleanor Ostrol approach, where you try to build together trust and collective action at whatever level you can. But that's, that's difficult, even at the local level, when you've got all the debates over, you know, ULES and um, so on and so forth. Uh, so what, what I think I'm arguing for is uh, somebody to come up with a convincing set of discourse or narrative uh, story, say, that uh, we shouldn't be individualistic, we should be collective. Uh, and I don't see the Labour Party saying that that is loudly as I would like. The last lecture I think that was given in, in this slot was by the late lamented Nick Crafts, Play It Again, Clem. Um, well, I think perhaps if you listen, to, as I do in my sad moments, listen to Clement Attlee on YouTube, uh, speeches in 1945, he is talking, I know it's sad, uh, he's, he's talking about that collective responsibility action. I, I think that's what we need. Uh, we need to start from that story. And the international institutions can be part of that. But don't let's um, like over-idealise them. But I'm not sure that's an answer, Patrick. Thank you. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I wanted to ask you about the role of the Federal Reserve. Um, yeah. So, among others, the New Deal order was predicated upon a shift of power from uh, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and Wall Street to the Treasury, to the administration more broadly, right, the State Department, the Presidency. Today, things are a bit different. I would say that we see this, like, entrenchment uh, in the U.S., and it's bipartisan. But I think the Fed is committed to financial uh, multilateralism or internationalism. A very good example is uh, 2020. While the Trump administration was uh, slashing tariffs on China, was crippling Huawei, for example, the Fed was keeping afloat the offshore dollar system with swap lines, expanded the swap lines even more, slashed the interest rate and so forth. Do you think that we could see this? We could see the Fed offsetting the protectionist tendencies of the administration, of the Treasury, for example, um, uh, in, in, the, in the future? I'm going to ask my translator again. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> I can, I can you need to give him a one-line summary of your question. Sure. Yeah. So, do you think that the Fed can uh, play a role of uh, committing itself to financial internationalism in, in, in this way, offsetting the protectionist yeah, tendencies yeah, of the administration. Yeah, yeah. Apologies for my, my hearing. I, no worries at all. I, I, That's fine. I'm losing various parts of the frequency, and I, I have an appointment to have it sorted out next month. I'll be then fully fully wired up and able to hear properly. Um, yeah, that's 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 interesting, isn't it? Um, I mean, it could say that the Fed is the only functioning part of the United States administration. Um, so that's uh, 
that's part of the, uh, the, the, answer, the answer to your, your question. Um, in whose interest is the Federal Reserve acting? Um, and I think it goes back to the beginning of my book where Morgenthau says that the Fed ought to be under political control and be acting in the interest of the, of the, white, the, the citizens as a, as a whole. Uh, and what Adam Tews uh, argues um, in the, the, his Substack uh, column, it, uh, I'm looking at that graph I showed you about the, the swap lines, he said the important thing actually is the um, balance sheets of uh, private financial institutions and that the Fed, this is of course the right wing criticism of the Fed, is merely creating moral hazard. So I think that it goes back to one of the things I was saying about lessons not learned from the 30s, uh, not having adequate financial regulation. I think it's a point which um, was made at the IMF, I think by Christine Lagarde, which is that the IMF made a mistake at only looking at net flows and not gross flows, and that is deeply destabilising. Um, I'm not sure the Fed can do much about that. I think you need to have the IMF taking more action on that sort of area. And there's also then the role of the Bank of International Settlements. Now that, that's independent central bankers working together in secret. Is there a democratic deficit in that? And I think this is always a very puzzling thing to me about how some things get picked up as dangerous. Let's take back control from the European Union because it's democratically unaccountable but the uh, if they, like the right wing of the Conservative Party don't say let's take back control from the Bank of International Settlements and they say let's have WTO rules well WTO is a court anyway so the, the answer to the question is well yeah, in, in whose interest is the, is the Federal Reserve acting I think Ben Bernanke uh, was right quantitative easing but as I, as I said, and of course everybody knows, it leads to um, uh, asset price inflation, which is beneficial to some people and not to others. I think that's, that's then at the heart of a populist backlash. Let's hand it back up. Um, thank you very much for your presentation. I really enjoy. Um, so I have two questions. The first one is about, um, so isn't that a lot of disagreements and um, the compromises happened during the Bretton Woods era reflects that countries are very difficult to cooperate in terms of their individual interests. So in that case, like, um, how would the local level approach that you mentioned in the last of your presentation lead to more co collaboration instead of further divergence and then possible more like extreme nationalism? And the second question is, um, it looks like there seems to be a lot of differences among local interests, national interests, and then further to international interests. So how would you think it effective for local interests to communicate it back to national level and then further to international level? Gosh, thank, thank you. you. Right. Um, I think what I was getting at in the talk, again, apologies if I misunderstood the, the question. What I was getting at in the, um, in the lecture was that post, the post-war Bretton Woods system 
insofar as it's operated, as far as international cooperation can operate within a certain limits, dependent upon a domestic um, trade-off, domestic trade-offs. Partly that can't be replicated because it is based upon a particular form of uh, economic structure, what I shorthand term call Ford's mass production, as against what we have now. And it's that sort of capitalism against capitalism without capital um, our argument about um, the nature of the labour market now that uh, people like Jim Tomlinson and so on have been talking about. So what I argue at the end at the end of the book is forget talking about international cooperation until you fix two sets of internal domestic issues. You're going to have a domestic populist backlash against global cooperation if you don't have a sense of balance and fairness domestically. <clears throat> that means resolving two issues, at least. The first one is what I was talking about within Britain and the United States about inequality, uh, the, the, the left behind, uh, leads to populist backlash, leads to the, uh, the, the, the protectionism and so on that we were talking about. But also in China, because um, I, I said that you have the situation after global financial crisis of, of fiscal um, stimulus in China. Well, that's leading, as we can see, with the property crisis with Evergrande and so on, to see this issue of debt, and you've got the debt of local authorities. It also means exports. It also means buying uh, uh, American treasuries. So if you're going to create an ability to have more cooperation in the international economy, you've got to first of all solve those two sets of problems in the internal domestic economies. The point made by Klein and Pettis, and, um, trade wars are class wars, which I very much um, buy into. Now, how are you going to get both of those very different societies to take action on that fixing the domestic issues which would create the ability to cooperate internationally. Are they going to do it, given their, their current political situation? That's very difficult to see. But of course, the, the story which um, I've not told, uh, which I did con conclude a lecture at an earlier stage when I was trying to write the book, which I gave in Melbourne, uh, is that um, a few years after 1933, there was a world war. Um, I wouldn't um, bank on there not being another major major war. That's the that's the gloomy uh, prognosis um, that um, comes through my mind all the time. Very good. Now, it, uh, I noticed that it's um, that we are getting more and more questions. Before I take the next question from the floor. I have two questions from the internet, and let me bundle them a little bit, right. uh, so kind of make them concise and you just uh, uh, pick what you, what you want to answer to. It's also a little bit concise because I'm already um, mindful of the, uh, of, the, of the clock that is ticking. Um, uh, the first one is Peha Baka who asks um, uh, how new economic theories um, that were introduced or invented uh, uh, during that period uh, changed the way in which politicians or negotiators behaved in international trade and finance. Yes. Um, whether you have examples or something. The second question uh, is um, uh, almost more like a, uh, a criticism. 
which is that um, it's nice to have a polycentric view, uh, but at the same time, uh, there is, of course, a geopolitical hierarchy. Yeah. Uh, and uh, some, obviously, some parties are a little bit more powerful than others. Sure. And there the question is basically whether international institu institutions uh, could uh, basically play a role in, uh, in changing the relative um, bargaining yeah. power of the big versus the small of of the north versus the global south. So one was about the theory, uh, theories right. that how yep. they shaped and changed mm. uh, mm. Um, um, uh, influenced action. The other one is about uh, the global south and its okay. voice. Okay, those are both um, really good questions which uh, uh, could take a long, a long time to answer. Um, okay, one line summary. One, one at a time. First of all, the, the role of economic ideas. <coughs> well, of course, excuse me, <coughs> that's important in... <coughs> God, not only my hearing, go, my voice. Uh, that's important in what I was saying about the Geneva Liberals, the Hayeks, the Rob Robins and so on, as against uh, Mead and, and others. I think that's a really important issue. Uh, right, Hayek and, and uh, Robbins lost that argument mm -hmm. in the 1930s and, and 40s. Um, the, the Mead, I suppose, pretty crudely, won. And I think it's interesting the way in which the people in that sort of area move in from the League, move into the IMF. The IMF is not doing what um, Hayek and the Geneva Liberals wanted, which was to control nation-states, because the Bretton Woods institutions are about nation-states. Um, it's about the, uh, you know, the IMF gives votes to um, the United States and Britain um, uh, above all. So it's about, that, about that, that power. But then, I think, I argue, I don't remember my own argument, that um, by the 1970s, that, like, Bretton Woods generation of Keynesian economists, called that loosely, are retiring. And you get a different set of economists coming, coming in. And you also get the return of some of those Genevan liberals I talked about, like, like Tumle, coming into the, um, the World Trade Organization. So throughout the book, I'm looking at the way in which these economic ideas come and go. Now, do the economic ideas matter so much? Or are the economic ideas being used as a legitimating device by the politicians and various interest groups. I think that's the, the issue I try, try to address. Um, I think the answer is a, lo a lot of it is about self-justification. Uh, and the second question was... Global South and the role of institutions in uh, some countries rebalancing are, bargaining. Some are more powerful than, than, than others. Um, because it's often said, like Charles Kindleberger, mm -hmm. that if you're going to have a successful... Uh, global system, you need to have a hegemon. Mm -hmm. you, know, you, you all know the argument, I'm sure, that, uh, that the, the, the system worked before 1914 because Britain was a hegemon. In the interwar period, it doesn't work because there is no hegemon and everybody is squabbling, the French, the British, the, the Americans. And then after this Second World War, there is then a hegemon. Now, it would be foolish to, to deny the fact that the American economy was the most powerful economy in the world after 1945. But what I've been suggesting is they don't get it all their own way. Uh, so in the Lend-Lease Agreement, 
uh, Britain except lend lease, you will get rid of imperial preference. The post-war loan, you accept the loan, you will get rid of imperial preference. Is imperial preference got rid of? No. So you have to look at why that might, might be. Also, at some points, the Americans will have to accept the arguments of the third world, if you like, because they don't want to play into the hands of the Soviets. So I think all the time the hegemony is being constrained. I'm not saying it's not powerful, but I'm saying that you have to understand the exact limits within which it operates and within different circumstances. <coughs> and within the American administration, there's a battle going on. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you take the, the new international economic order that I, I referred to, um, there's, there's a, a tape of Nixon uh, where he says, I don't give a various expletives about the economy. Geopolitics are more important. To which um, you know, the economists would say, actually, um, you know, you've got to be a bit careful because if you don't have a strong economy, you won't have geopolitical strategy. So I, I quoted John uh, Galbraith, J.K. Galbraith, who is arguing that we must bring those um, selfish Germans to, to heel by cutting um, the, the support for uh, the American forces in Germany. To which the, the response is, and you want Soviet tanks rolling in? So, you know, the, the people who are taking part in those negotiations can play upon that. So, America's powerful, but not all powerful, is, is, my, um, is my story. And of course, now it is not all powerful. We are in a multipolar world, uh, but that, that's different. Very good. I'm taking the last two questions and then I close the list. Can't have you, unfortunately. So it's you, uh, and then it's you. I will bundle that. Uh, please keep it short and keep it loud. Okay? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> can I have a shout? The microphone is. is uh, Sorry, you might lose your voice over this question. It's a, it's a tricky one. Uh, you referenced um, the fact that you hadn't written, or the, the thread of writing history. Uh, up to the present date. You're very difficult to understand. The microphone has, has a strange characteristic. It needs to be right in front of your mouth. Is that better? Can yeah, you understand yeah. me there? Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> to I, I wanted to ask you about the role of the conflict in Israel and Palestine right now. Oh, gosh. And the potential... <laughs> Thank you. I've the potential history, uh, ramifications yeah. that, that will have on US legitimacy and the breakdown in multinational relations between Muslim and non-Muslim uh, economic economies. Um, that is a difficult yeah. question. And, and can we take your question also right away and then you answer to both questions in one go and then it will be slowly time to wrap it up. Thank you very much. Um, quick question for me. Could you say, building on this theme of global south exclusion, um, can you hear me okay? Uh, the mic needs to be can almost close to the lips otherwise it doesn't work. Like this. Any better? That's a bit better, Thank yeah. you. Um, so building on this theme of Global South exclusion, no. could you, could you say a little bit... Close to the mouth, that's what pop singers do. <laughs> could, 
Could you say um, a little bit about the role of the new development bank? So that's the yeah. one that the BRICS has recently yep. set up. Yep. A, is this a viable alternative to Bretton Woods institutions? And B, is this something that we'll, we'll continue to see if the World Bank doesn't reform its governance structure and yep. continues to alienate Global South countries? Thank you. Okay, yeah, can I start with our second question first? Um, yeah, I'm, this, this is again part of the whole the whole problem we have at the moment that the you know, the Belt and Road Initiative and the, those loans are now very high, but they're not part of the Paris Club. So our question is, how do you handle uh, debt renegotiation? Um, it's very very difficult, <clears throat> and clearly that is being used for geopolitical reasons as much as economic reasons. So that, that's uh, an issue about then the, the, the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank um, and, the, and the BRICS Bank. Um, the Americans seem to be arguing for a remaking of the um, development banks which are if like, within the sort of World Bank remit, you know, the Latin American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank. Uh, so there's, there's a bit of a, a, an argument going, going on there. Um, I haven't got the, the graph, graph here, but of course, it's the, it's the private um, loans are bigger than the, these international institution loans. Um, what should be the role of the IMF in trying to uh, balance all of those together when they don't actually have perfect information? So I think that there's um, a whole set of issues around, around that, and the loans are being used, as I said, for geopolitical as much as purely economic reasons. So that also links in with what we were talking about earlier on. Um, I think there's a real serious issue about indebtedness in the emerging markets. Um, and if you add that to what I was referring to as, as the problem within China, um, the, the savings rate in China is very, very high. I can't remember what it's about 40% or something. Um, where does it find outlets for that? Uh, so I think that is a potentially very worrying destabilizing factor, both within the Chinese economy and within the international economy. Can the IMF resolve that? Well, I don't know. So I, again, I'm painting a rather uh, gloomy uh, picture there. Um, I don't know if you, you agree with that or, or not, or you see more optimism with the BRICS bank coming in. <clears throat> and what we're talking about optimism, um, the issue about um, what the war, a war conflict between Israel and uh, the Gaza Strip might might lead to. I think that's that's a, a, a really big issue. What I see see happening, and this is where I could start to become very gloomy, is like the 1930s, the starting of uh, conflicting power blocks. Uh, I noticed um, in the, I think it was in the FT, just as I was coming in, a story that Hamas delegation has just gone to Russia, to, to Moscow. Uh, clearly China and uh, Russia are forming an alliance with North Korea. Uh, I think that, I mean, this is the, the space that I really want to uh, be uh, very concerned about, is these growing geopolitical divides and this is where the lessons of history really come in, because there I'm talking about <clears throat> the 1930s. Of course, the 1930s is very, very different. Um, 
as being one potential scenario. The other one that I often refer to, uh, used to refer to five years ago, is I saw more similarities with 1914. Who knew where the next conflict might come from? The, the, the Cold War was too stable power blocks, if you like. Whereas 1914, it could be coming from anywhere. Now, my final remark is that I have, I was hinting there, be very careful what lessons you learn from history. It was pointed out by Harold James, who obviously counts, that I three times cite Paul Kennedy, saying that in 2008, the world was very different from the World Economic Conference in 1933 because there were no major geopolitical conflicts. Hey. That has changed a little bit. On this um, uh, very optimistic note, <laughs> um, uh, it um, remains for me to thank you very much. Could everybody please put their hand together? I'm not, I'm not finished yet. I'm not finished yet. I would also uh, thank the uh, Economic History um, Alumni uh, Association for uh, their support of this event and for their support general, generally, and um, advertise not, not just the book, but also our alumni board uh, for uh, future membership. Those of you who are going through the school, um, when you kind of rise up the ranks, make careers, don't forget the department, don't forget to join the alumni board and uh, um, kind of uh, give back to not just the department, that's not the point, but really to future students and uh, help making events like this one tonight possible. Thank you so very much. I understand you will be outside uh, uh, available to sign a few books and do things or... Uh, well, apparently some people have bought copies of the book. They might want to return it after the lecture. Um, <laughs> but oh, uh, uh, some people said they would like me to sign it, yes, uh, and therefore de devaluing the, the, the book. Uh, I'll be outside with my, with my best fountain pen if anybody wants me to, to sign. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.